What's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. And today we're talking about a man who looks like Richard Ramirez and Ted Bundy had a baby. Absolutely. I think you could throw a little Charles Manson in there, too. He's got that Ted Bundy charm, too, if you will. Not that Ted Bundy's very charming. I never understood that. Yeah, I never thought that Ted Bundy was very charming, either. Before we get into the case, we have a shout-out to give. We got some other really nice reviews this week, but we didn't have a name for them. So thank you, guys, for giving us those. And that shout-out goes to Mike from New Jersey. And just remember, guys, if you leave a review leave your name and location so we can give you a shout out on the show thanks mike this is episode 21 of going west so let's get into it when it comes to weight loss no two people are the same that's why noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan. He can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. A podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Investigators chased this killer for years, and finally they targeted a brilliant and charismatic photographer named Rodney Alcala. But now officials believe he might be one of the worst serial killers in history. The prosecution called Rodney Alcala, quote, a monster, a monster who loves to kill women. This is a clip from the dating game back in the 1970s. Bachelor number one was just convicted of five murders. Bachelor number one is a serial killer, turns out, and he had already had a violent record when this episode aired. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. That's your best time. 
the best time is at night, nighttime. I'm called the banana, and I look really good. Uh, can you be a little more descriptive? Peel me. We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Rodney James Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas on August 23, 1943, to Raul and Ana Maria Alcala. In 1951, his father moved the family to Mexico, where they lived for three years until Raul abandoned them. Ana Maria, Rodney's mother, then moved her children to suburban Los Angeles to start a new life with them. At this point, Rodney was 11 years old. In 1960, at the age of 17, Rodney joined the U.S. Army and served as a clerk where he did typing and administrative work. He stayed with the Army for four years, but in 1964, he actually received a medical discharge after having a major nervous breakdown, and he was diagnosed with severe antisocial personality disorder by a military psychiatrist. Other diagnoses from a homicide expert included narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and psychopathy with sexual sadism. He had gone AWOL and actually hitchhiked from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to his mother's home in Los Angeles. At this point, he was 21 years old and enrolled in UCLA. Four years later, he received a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Rodney committed his very first crime just after graduating from UCLA in the spring of 1968. An unknown witness was driving down Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and noticed a beige-colored car with no license plates slowly driving alongside a young girl. The girl then got into this car, and the driver was incredibly suspicious. It didn't look like it was her dad or brother or someone that she knew. The whole scenario just struck the witness as odd. As the witness followed the car, it had eventually stopped at a Hollywood apartment building, where the man and the girl got out of the car and walked inside. The witness then phoned the Los Angeles Police Department. When the police reached the apartment, Chris Camacho, the officer on duty, stated, Police officer, open the door, I need to talk to you. Rodney then replied, I'm in the shower, I gotta get dressed. The police officer told him he had 10 seconds before kicking the door down. They immediately noticed a body laying in the kitchen surrounded by blood. The girl was 8-year-old Tally Shapiro and Rodney had raped her before using a metal bar to strangle and beat her. She wasn't breathing, so police quickly assumed that she had passed. Police officers scattered throughout the apartment looking for the man responsible, but he was gone. To Officer Camacho's surprise, Tally started gagging and trying to breathe. She was immediately rushed to the hospital where her life was miraculously saved. This is just a really crazy scenario. This police officer walks into this apartment and sees this little girl on the kitchen floor of Rodney's apartment. And she's basically one of the police officers said, I couldn't believe that there was so much blood that came out of a little girl like that. And by some miracle, she was gurgling and trying to breathe. And thank God for that witness who had seen Rodney's car beforehand, because if he had never seen that and had never followed Rodney's car and called police, Tally Shapiro would have been dead today. 
Yeah, it's one of those situations where, you know, this happens a lot when children are abducted and you're just like, how did no one see that? But this is one of those situations where somebody saw it and they actually did something about it. Exactly. And, you know, our lives get really busy every day and things are moving really fast in our everyday lives. So it's so easy to miss something like this. But for some reason, this Good Samaritan had a hunch, saw something bad going down, and decided to follow Rodney's car all the way back to his apartment and then call police from that point. So, I mean, he went like the extra mile to make sure that this child was safe. So props to this person. And something that really stuck with Officer Camacho was that when he walked into the apartment, he saw two white Mary Jane shoes, like, sprawled across the kitchen, not on Tally's feet. And that just really struck him because this is just a little girl's shoes. And it's just so incredible that she actually survived this horrific incident and was able to go on and live her life after that. And in this show, we rarely talk about these victims who make it out alive, so... It is really cool to see that she was able to survive this attack. As police searched the house, they noticed photography equipment and photos of young girls everywhere, from about the age of 7 to 30. They quickly identified the man as 25-year-old Rodney Alcala. They immediately began interviews and even talked to some of his professors at UCLA, who described him as a great guy who would never harm anyone. After searching far and wide for Rodney and discovering his mental health history, he was added to the FBI's most wanted list. Little did the police know, Rodney had fled to New York where he used the alias John Berger to enroll at NYU where he studied film under Roman Polanski. And for those of you who don't know who Roman Polanski is, he's a very well-known director, producer, and writer. He was also married to Sharon Tate when she was murdered by the Manson family in 1969, which, oddly enough, happened the following year. That's such a crazy part of this case because little did he know that there was a serial killer studying beneath him, and then his wife would be murdered the next year by somebody else, and then... To top it all off, we actually will discuss two other serial killers throughout this story who were killing in the same areas at the same time as Rodney Alcala. In the summer of 1971, Rodney obtained a job as a counselor at a children's art camp in New Hampshire while still using the alias John Berger. But this time, for whatever reason, instead of B-E-R-G-E-R, he did B-U-R-G-E-R. So technically a different alias. That same summer, a Trans World Airlines flight attendant, who was 23-year-old Cornelia Crilly, was found raped and strangled in her Manhattan apartment. Her murder had gone unsolved until it was actually connected to Rodney Alcala, but this wouldn't be discovered until 2011. That same year in 1971, the FBI added Rodney to their 10 most wanted fugitives list. Because think about it, this is a few years later, he still hasn't been caught. While two children who attended the art camp he worked at were in the post office one day, they saw the most wanted poster and recognized Rodney's photo. They notified the camp directors of this, and from there, they called police. Law enforcement arrived at the camp and arrested Rodney Alcala for rape and attempted murder of Tally Shapiro and extradited him back to California. The 70s were wild. You could apply to a job and enroll in college and nobody checks out your shit. Like they just believe what you say. 
Yeah, and he must have been kind of savvy in order to enroll in NYU. I mean, that's a pretty hard school to get into. And I would imagine he probably would have had to show them some sort of paperwork. So I don't know if he forged a social security card or I don't know how John Berger is actually connected to him. If maybe he found John Berger's ID or if he had stolen John Berger's or if John Berger is not actually even a person. We don't really know, but we do know that Rodney Alcala is savvy enough to create a false person to actually get him these jobs and get into college. So that that blows my mind. That is a good point to make. I wonder how he came up with the name John Berger or if he did indeed steal someone's identity and information, but I couldn't find that online. I think the scariest part is literally that this fucking douchebag is working at a children's camp just three years after he tried to kill Tally Shapiro, an eight-year-old girl. It's very telling. I mean, he obviously wanted to be around children. That's why he took that job. It's so scary, though. I mean, he probably had a lot of opportunities where he could have killed some of those kids at that camp and either he didn't take those opportunities but just to think that a child killer would be involved in this kind of program it really freaks me out and I'm not even a parent but to think about putting your child in a camp and you think oh it's camp it's fun it's safe and then one of the counselors is literally a child rapist like oh my god 100% a wolf in a field full of sheep Since this was three years after the crime, Tally's family had moved. The Shapiros relocated to Mexico because of what Rodney had done. They were afraid to remain in the country, especially since, at the time, he was nowhere to be found. When it came time to stand trial, the Shapiros refused to be involved. This reflected on the case incredibly badly because without a testimony from the victim and primary witness, Rodney could not be convicted of the crime. Prosecutors were forced to have Rodney plead guilty to a lesser charge. After just 34 months, so less than three years, Rodney was paroled. In 1974, it was really popular to use the indeterminate sentencing program where offenders were released from prison when they showed evidence of rehabilitation. And it's unknown how they determined he was rehabilitated, but he was known to be incredibly charming. Less than two months after Rodney was released from prison, he was arrested for violating parole after he gave marijuana to a 13-year-old girl who claimed she had been kidnapped. He was imprisoned again, but for just two years this time, and was released under indeterminate sentencing once again. To me, what is really messed up in this whole situation is that Rodney only gets 34 months for almost killing an 8-year-old girl, goes to prison, gets out of prison, violates his parole and literally tries to abduct another girl and they only give him two more years for that it's like come on man it's like clearly he's a danger to society and it's frustrating that they don't see that enough to like lock him up forever because if he offended once and then he offended again as soon as he got out like that is a clear message people yeah and it's almost the same type of crime i mean he abducted one girl he tries to abduct another girl it's just it blows my mind to think that they were so focused on rehabilitating people that they couldn't see how evil this guy was so in 1977 rodney was a free man and 34 years old Somehow, despite his horrific criminal record and sex offender registration, the Los Angeles Times hired him as a typesetter, which he had experience doing in the Army. Interestingly enough, much of the coverage at the time was revolving around the Hillside Stranglers, which is a case that we covered in Episode 9. 
While he was working for the LA Times, he redeveloped his passion for photography and actually told numerous young women that he was a professional fashion photographer in hopes of taking their photo for his portfolio. Some of these photos are taken in very vulnerable moments and locations, which only makes us think the worst about some of these women and girls' fates. In 1978, Rodney was accepted to be a contestant on a TV show called The Dating Game. It was a popular show on ABC where four people would be on stage, one woman and three men who were described as bachelors. They would all be sitting in chairs in a line for the audience to see, and there was a wall between the one woman and the three men. The woman is allowed to ask any question about the man to get to know them better and determine who she's going to choose to be her bachelor, but she wasn't allowed to ask anything regarding their name, age, occupation, or income. So it's kind of like a blind matchmaking show. The host introduced Rodney to the audience as a successful photographer who got his start with his father at age 13 and that he also enjoyed skydiving and motorcycling. And then he stated his name, Rodney Alcala. I think it's really interesting that he used his real name on the show since he had a criminal history. Even though at this point the police didn't know that he was murdering women, they just knew that he attempted to murder Tali Shapiro and raped her. But still, he had that rape and attempted murder on his record. And first of all, it's interesting that the show didn't catch that. And secondly, it's just weird that since he had used an alias before, that he didn't choose to use an alias again on national television. Yeah, that does seem pretty strange that they didn't look into his background. If anyone wants to watch this, just search Serial Killer Rodney Alcala TV Game Show Appearance. And we'll actually put that on our Instagram as well for you guys to check out. He actually came across as pretty funny and charming and totally wins over The Bachelorette. The show actually gifted them with tennis lessons for their first date, which is probably the most 70s prize I could possibly imagine, (laughs) as well as tickets to the theme park Magic Mountain. And after the show, the two were ushered backstage to talk and get to know each other a little bit better. And Cheryl later reported that while they were talking, she felt ill because he was so creepy. She turned down his offer for the date because she didn't want to see him again. She never actually stated what he said that made her feel this way, though. She probably just got, like, a really strong vibe. I mean, from what a lot of other people say, he seems, like, charming, but at the same time, like, a super weird guy. So, I mean, props to her for recognizing that. I think that's kind of his thing, is he wants to appear to be charming on the surface, but clearly he's just a socially messed up person. I mean, in this game show, though, again, you guys should watch it, but we also put a little bit of that in the beginning of this episode. He does seem totally normal. I mean, he seems like a kind of funny dude. Like, I kind of understand why she chose him from what he was saying, because I kind of thought he was funny, too, as messed up as that is to say. Well, I mean, if you're looking at the other Bachelors that were on the show, they were a little less interesting, I think. But one of the other Bachelors on the same episode as Rodney actually described Rodney as very strange with bizarre opinions. And a criminal profiler later noted that with this rejection from Cheryl, it likely sent him into a rage. And the profiler wonders if that had anything to do with the murders he committed later, since serial killers especially do not understand rejection. So just a year after the game show, on June 20th, 1979, Robin Samso was a 12-year-old girl living in Huntington Beach, California. 
That spring day, Robin was starting her first day of work, where she would answer calls at a ballet studio in exchange for lessons. But in the beginning of the day, Robin and her friend Bridget wanted to play at the beach for a few hours. The two girls were just hanging out on the sand when a dark-haired man approached them, asking if he could take their pictures. So this is kind of weird for any person to do. I mean, these are two 12-year-old girls by themselves at the beach. Even a professional photographer, that's a weird thing to do. Yeah, no, that's absolutely weird. It's weird, one, because these girls are 12 years old and they're, they're in bathing suits on the beach. And two, it's just strange to take pictures of strangers on the beach. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes people do that, but not 12-year-old girls in their bathing suits hanging out and you're a man. Like, that's just, no. And also to note before you move on here, they weren't the first girls that he asked if he could take their pictures on the beach, he had been asking multiple different girls that day. Well, it's funny because if I was at the beach and some guy came up to me and was like, I'm a professional photographer. Can I take your picture? I'd be like, no, <laughs> like that's just weird, you know, because I feel like that's not really how it works. And a lot of these girls were told that they were going to be put in magazines. It would be more of a legit process, you would think, than just I'm going to take your picture and put it in a magazine. He also stated that he wanted to take their pictures sometimes because he was entering in a contest or something for his school to win this photography contest or something of the sort. I mean, you know, what can he really do with your picture at the same time if you're just at the beach? It's not the worst thing that someone could ask of you, but it's just still pretty strange. But a lot of them were clearly very willing. Of course. I mean, you have these young, impressionable girls and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in this magazine. Like, he's a professional photographer. Obviously, he's using this as a manipulation tactic because he knows that these are young, impressionable girls. Well, Robin actually said yes to letting him take their photo. And I don't know if Bridget said yes or no, but Robin was fine with it. At that same time that she said yes, and he was about to take their photo. So Robin's best friend, her neighbor popped up randomly and saw this situation happening and asked the girls if everything was okay and if they were all right. And she probably saw them with this man and got that weird feeling that I think we all would have gotten. And as soon as she approached them, Rodney was gone. Like he just vanished and he was probably super spooked by the neighbor coming up to them because he was guilty. It's it's a great thing that she stepped in and she was able to like shoo him off. And I really don't blame Robin or any of these girls for accepting this invitation because he was a young guy, you know, he was kind of attractive and he probably came off as very innocent and they had no idea what he was capable of and what he wanted out of the deal. So, you know, we definitely can't blame them, especially, you know, this is California. Right. And photography to Rodney is basically his candy in the van, essentially. And after the run-in with Rodney, Robin put her beach towel into her bag and said that she better get going to the ballet studio. Bridget was still feeling a bit uneasy from the photographer, so she told Robin to take her bike and not to stop. A bit later, Robin's ballet teacher called her parents, explaining that she hadn't shown up for her lesson. That's when Robin's mom called the police. Police immediately went to talk to Bridget, since she had been the last person to see her. Bridget explained to police that a man had approached them at the beach, and she described his appearance, where a composite sketch was made of a man with curly hair to his shoulders. 
And we'll get more into the disappearance of Robin Samso after this short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. 
And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Sarah Marslin? I bet you will have heard of their murderers, though. Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Coletta Ram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. explores the secrets and strangeness of small towns across the globe, be it paranormal, true crime, or just plain weird. Every town has a secret. What is yours? Do you have a story to share of a town that you've lived in? Then head over to stscast.com and use the submission form at the bottom of the page, and it might end up on the show. You can follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at STScast. Available now, wherever you get your podcast. And we're back. Twelve days after Robin went missing, a fire crew found a body in the Los Angeles foothills. The head was detached, the hands were missing, and the front teeth were cracked. It took three days to confirm that the body was Robin Samso's. Police released the composite sketch that was created by Bridget, and it circulated around the area. Rodney Alcala's parole officer recognized it and identified him as the potential suspect. At that time, Rodney was living with his mom in Monterey Park, which was located incredibly close to where Robin's remains were found. So it's unknown if Rodney had removed Robin's head and her hands, but police suspect that the animal life in the area may have gotten to her body, and that's why she was hard to identify. And to give you guys a visual of the area, Huntington Beach is about 40 minutes south of Monterey Park where Rodney's mother lived. 
Police searched Rodney's mother's house and found a receipt for a storage unit in Seattle. After Rodney knew that he was caught, he phoned his sister and told her about the storage unit because he knew police were going to search it. He told her to do him a favor and get everything out of there. But police beat his sister to Seattle and uncovered an incredible amount of evidence. There were thousands of images of different young women. This really frightened police because they knew Rodney had killed at least two girls at this point, and these photos led them to believe he could be responsible for many, many more deaths. Police also discovered that Rodney had rented that locker and put all his belongings in there just nine days after Robin's remains were found. And I have to kind of wonder why he chose Seattle, because for those of you who live in different countries, I feel like everybody knows Seattle is in Washington, which is two states above California, and it is a very long drive. So I don't know if he drove up there or flew or what, but it just seems kind of odd that he chose a location that far. Yeah, that definitely seems pretty odd. He could have definitely chosen a place in California, even if it was Northern California or in San Diego or something. I think he obviously was taking precautions to not get caught, which was smart on his part, I guess, but in the end, it didn't really do any good for him. Well, it's funny then that he had that receipt at all because he was being that careful that he got a storage unit in a completely different state and then he kept a receipt lying around. Like, it's just kind of funny, that juxtaposition of very careful and then very, very sloppy. Amongst all of the evidence, police found a small silk bag filled with earrings, which Rodney claimed were his. Regardless, police showed the earrings to Robin's mother to see if she recognized any of them, and she immediately identified a pair of gold ball studs to be hers, which Robin often borrowed. Other than the photos, all those earrings seemed to be Rodney's trophies. The even more frightening fact was there were multiple pairs. And it's pretty crazy because they probably wouldn't have been able to convict Rodney of Robin's murder had it not been for that receipt because then they wouldn't have found the earrings and all the other evidence and since there wasn't any evidence or DNA on Robin's remains when they were found it's very likely that her death would have gone unsolved. Even though the sketch matched up to him if there's no evidence pointing him to the crime saying that he was the one who committed it then obviously they wouldn't have been able to convict him but now they have these earrings which you know it's all because of that receipt. It's also important to note that they did find Robin's DNA on the earrings. Yeah, and oftentimes we see this in a lot of different serial killer cases where police will say, oh yeah, we we know that he has killed at least this many people, but he could have killed up to this many people. And the number is always so high. It's just one of those things where Robin could have become one of those unknown victims in the end. Rodney was arrested for the murder of Robin Samso and was held without bail. In February of 1980, Rodney went to trial, which lasted two and a half months. Over 50 witnesses testified. It seemed like a fairly cut and dry case, though, and the Samso family was very confident that he would be put away for life. But they were definitely afraid that he would walk away a free man, despite all the seemingly clear evidence. The jury came back with a decision after a couple days of deliberating. They convicted Rodney Alcala and sentenced him to death. Robin's mother actually reported later that she brought a gun to court because she had planned to shoot 
Rodney between the eyes for murdering her daughter. And she said that when she was about to pull the gun out of her purse, that she smelled Robin's shampoo and there was a warm presence on her hand and she could not pull the gun out of her purse and she didn't end up going through with it. And I feel like it's so hard for any of us to be able to understand what Robin's mother was going through at that time. But to be honest with you, if I was put in that position, I would have probably done the same thing. I mean, this person, you're staring at this person who killed your child. I can't even imagine how frustrating that is to be a parent or a family member in a trial and the murderer is just right there in the same room as you and you have to look at them and you have to hear them talk. I've seen, I've actually seen a, a couple of videos of like parents or family members like jumping over the stands in a courtroom to like get to the killer. And I totally fucking get that. Especially because it goes on for so many days. It's not just like, oh, you have to see them once. Like you have to see them again and again and again. Of course. And it brings up that heartache once again. And I also remember listening to an interview of Robin's mom where they were saying that it took three days to identify her body and her mom was just crying saying that she didn't understand why it took them so long because how many other young girls with long blonde hair went missing and they said that there wasn't any hair. And so to have to hear that as a mother and then hear the details of what he did to her over and over again, like I just can't imagine. So most of the room sighed with relief that such an evil man would be put behind bars where he could never hurt a little girl again. But that relief was incredibly short-lived when the California State Supreme Court ruled that Rodney did not receive a fair trial after he had appealed. Apparently, the jury had not been informed of Rodney's prior sex crimes, including the attack on Tally Shapiro. So it doesn't seem like the Supreme Court believed Rodney was innocent, but they still wanted a second trial to be set into motion, which means the Samso family would have to go through that pain all over again. So this time, the Samso family was confident that they would give Robin the justice she deserved. Six years later, Rodney Alcala was convicted of Robin's murder once again. The Samsos were relieved all over again, but her mother would report how terrifying it was just to know that he was still alive because you never know if there's a chance he will be free again, especially since Rodney had filed yet another appeal. In 2001, so 22 years after he killed Robin Samso, a federal appeals court overturned Rodney Alcala's sentence for a second time based on evidence he didn't get to present the first or second time around. Because of this, Rodney was granted a third trial. So this poor family has to go through now a third trial, and they were absolutely devastated by this. And this is over the course of 22 years. So this family basically isn't granted the ability to move on from this horrible act because they continue to be forced into reliving it. Just like we learned from Tally Shapiro's family opting out of the trial, the Samsos needed to be there in order to make sure that Rodney would go away for her murder or risk him potentially going free. So it's hard to imagine how difficult a situation they were put in because obviously they don't want to keep going through these trials and reliving it, but if they don't, there will be consequences. Exactly. And this whole time, over all of these years in Rodney Alcala's cases, 
he's really been extremely lucky in all of this. I mean, he could have been put away for life in 1968 with Telly Shapiro, and by some dumb luck, he gets off, and he gets off again and again and again, and it feels to me like the court system was kind of inept at that point in time. I don't really know how it was in the 70s, but if he's able to continue to get away with these murders and rapes and sexual assaults, then there's clearly something wrong with that justice system. Rodney actually then started representing himself, and crazy enough, Tally Shapiro showed up to court to testify as a witness and tell her truth and her story, and Rodney apologized to her. If I was Tally Shapiro, I would have spit in his face. In 2010, police were able to identify that Rodney Alcala murdered Cornelia Crilly, the 23-year-old flight attendant from Manhattan, who we mentioned earlier, along with Ellen Hover, and Rodney pleaded guilty to their murders. Ellen was a 23-year-old artist and musician and living in New York City at the time. Her father owned a famed Hollywood nightclub, and her godfathers were well-known actors. In July of 1977, she met a photographer and jotted his name down in her date book, John Berger. Ellen told a close friend that he had approached her asking to take her photo and was pressuring her for lunch. Ellen was too nice to say no and was potentially a bit charmed by this. She went on a lunch date with him and was never heard from again. The newspapers read, Nightclub heiress goes missing. Her murder actually occurred at the same time as the Son of Sam killings, so her headliner was amongst those murders. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder In the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Missing posters were posted all over Manhattan, and Ellen's family hired private detectives to help search for her. Eleven months after she went missing, they found Ellen's bones at the old Rockefeller estate in Westchester County, New York. It was one of Rodney's favorite photo shoot locations. It was actually around this time that police discovered that John Berger was the alias used by Rodney Alcala, but with the lack of evidence, they weren't able to pin the murder on him. After murdering Ellen, Rodney fled back to California. At the same time he was on the road, a 29-year-old woman named Christine Thornton was traveling to Montana from Texas with her boyfriend. 
Christine was known as a free spirit and she was actually going to Montana to pan for gold. Before she left for her trip, she called her mom and told her the big news. She was pregnant. After that call, her mom never heard from Christine again. Her mother initially worried that something had happened with her boyfriend. Christine had previously been abused by him, so her entire family thought that he had done something to her. Christine's sister Kathy searched tirelessly for her for almost 40 years. She tried to track the couple's whereabouts and contacted police departments, federal agencies, hospitals, you name it. She kept a record of every call and letter she sent. There weren't any employment records for Christine and her bank account hadn't been touched. Not that her family suspected she had run away and started a new life anyway, especially since she was going to have a baby just three months after she disappeared and expressed that excitement to her family. It seemed incredibly unlikely that that was the case. In 2013, Kathy Thornton's son, so Christine's nephew, was watching a 48 Hours story on Rodney Alcala, which then led him to CBSNews.com, where he looked at a series of photos of different women taken by Rodney that were unidentified. He sent it to his mom, Christine's sister, and told her to have a look if she wanted. As she was scrolling through the photos, she found this one of a brunette woman sitting on a motorcycle. She thought it looked like her sister, but it wasn't until she noticed a small detail that she was sure it was Christine. Christine had a very small pinky toe that kind of hooked, and it looked very different. In the photo, the woman was barefoot, and she could see her pinky toe, which looked small and hooked. After seeing that, she knew. Kathy immediately began looking up Rodney Alcala on Google. She came up with the conclusion that her sister likely met Rodney at a stop and they traveled for a bit together before he killed her. Kathy then submitted her own DNA to a national database of missing persons, hoping that a match will come up if her sister's body is ever found and tested. Jill Barcombe was an 18-year-old girl who Rodney sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death before dumping her body in the Hollywood Hills in November 1977. Georgia Wickstead was 27 years old, and she was also sexually assaulted, strangled, and beaten to death in her Malibu home a month after Jill. Another was Charlotte Lamb, a 32-year-old who was found dead in her laundry room in El Segundo after she was raped and strangled with a shoelace in June 1978. And Jill Parento, age 21, was strangled to death in her Burbank apartment in 1979. A lot more victims were discovered over the years just by photo identification alone. Because of the thousands of photos Rodney had in his possession, 120 of them were posted online for people to see and police urged that the public look through them to determine if any could have potentially fallen victim to Rodney. Apparently, 900 photos weren't made public because they were too sexually explicit. In the first few weeks, 21 women came forward to identify themselves, and at least six families said that they believed they recognized loved ones who disappeared around the time and had never been found. None of those families have ever gotten real justice because the bodies were never discovered but it's obviously very likely that they fell victim to Rodney. So going back to the 2011 convictions, Rodney was indicted for the murders of Cornelia Crilly and Ellen in January. Then in June 2012, he was extradited to New York where he initially pleaded not guilty to both counts. But six months later in December, he changed both pleas to guilty. He then cited that he wanted to return to California to pursue an appeal for his death penalty conviction. 
The following month, in January 2013, a Manhattan judge sentenced Rodney to an additional 25 years to life as the death penalty was not an option since it was not legal in the state of New York since 2007. In September 2016, Rodney was charged with the murder of Christine Thornton. So about three years after her sister had discovered the photo of Christine on the motorcycle. Turns out her body had been found in Wyoming in 1982, but no DNA match came up in the system until her sister, Kathy, entered her DNA into the database we mentioned before. The match came from a tissue sample taken from Christine's remains. Rodney admitted to taking the photo but not murdering her. At the time of this conviction, Rodney was 73 years old and apparently too ill to travel from California to Wyoming to stand trial. To this day, he remains in the California State Prison in Corcoran. We really encourage you guys to go look at these photos of these potential victims to possibly help identify them. And you can do that by just Googling Rodney Alcala photos and they will come up. And if anyone knows anything about any of the photos, please call 1-800-577-TIPS. Again, that's one 800 577 T-I-P-S. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yeah, thanks so much, everybody. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. If you want to tell us what you thought about this case, go check us out on Instagram at Going West Podcast. And also go check us out on Twitter at Going West Pod. Also, make sure to check out our Facebook group, Going West True Crime. And also, don't forget to check out our website, goingwestpodcast.com. And if you want bonus episodes, hit up our Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. All the plugs. So, until next time, gang, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio. Cheerio.